Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, March the 14th, 2023. Text in the headlines again. Collapse of Silicon Valley Bank is um, worrying a lot of people, both out here in Silicon Valley and around the country. It's having ramifications after quakes on the rest of the economy, like technology in a broader sense. It was a very interesting piece in the New York Times on Sunday by Ezra Klein, who's one of our smartest uh, analysts of technology writing about chat GPT and generative AI, uh, suggesting that this changes everything, quoting uh, the CEO of Google, one of the major players in the new AI economy, uh, Sundar Pichai, saying um, that AI is probably the most important thing humanity has ever worked on. Uh, I think of it as something more profound than electricity or fire. That may or may not be true. It's rather chilling if the Googles of the world are controlling our fate when it comes to the new version of electricity or fire. Uh, the same is, of course, true of ChatGPT, which is uh, managed by Microsoft and a young man called Sam Altman, who's increasingly the new Elon Musk or Steve Jobs of uh, Silicon Valley. One person who's given a great deal of thought to the challenges and problems and perhaps opportunities of our new data economy is my guest today, Meredith Broussard. Uh, she um, teaches at New York University. She's done a lot of writing and thinking about AI. Uh, her first book was Artificial Unintelligence. And she has a new book out, More Than a Glitch, Confronting Race, Gender, and Ability Bias in Tech. And uh, the book is out this week. And she's just joining us from uh, New York. Uh, Meredith, uh, do you agree with um, with uh, with uh, Ezra Klein about AI or this new version of AI, generative AI, chat GPT, changing everything? You know, I did really like this, uh, this Ezra Klein article. Uh, so thank you for having me, by the way. Uh, and I really enjoyed the Ezra Klein article and my favorite line in it was where he said, well, I, I have trouble explaining to you how deeply weird this community is. And I don't mean that uh, as judgmental, I mean it as descriptive, right? And so based on my experience of uh, you know, of being in these kind of tech intensive environments. Yeah, sometimes it gets really weird. Yeah, and uh, uh, Ezra Klein made that point because he said he, although I think he's like you based in New York, um, he spent a lot of time out here and he actually has access to people and places that most of us don't. Um, what in your view, Meredith, uh, is weird about Silicon Valley, about the... Uh, the men, and they tend to be men, and of course they tend to be white men, that's one of the core arguments in your book, controlling our fate as a species, uh, the Sam Altmans of the world. So one of the things that happens when you have a small and a homogeneous group of people creating technology is that the technology 
get the biases and the blind spots of the creators. So if Silicon Valley had uh, followed up on any of their promises to diversify their workforce, uh, then they would be in a much better position to make technology that works for everybody that doesn't, uh, you know, doesn't discriminate, uh, doesn't have unconscious biases uh, or as many unconscious biases embedded in it. Um, however, because Silicon Valley has not uh, adopted a more diverse workforce over the years, uh, they seem to keep making the same mistakes over and over again. In other words, Meredith, and I'm going to pitch your book here, um, the fact that technology seems to be compounding inequality between whites and blacks, between men and women, perhaps on the gender front, is boom, 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 more than a glitch, right? Yeah. We tend to think about, uh, you know, so when we have a situation like uh, ChatGPT uh, generating text that seems to be grooming uh, a child for a child predator, we tend to talk about that as just a glitch, as a blip uh, in the code that's easily fixed and not really of much importance. Uh, but what I argue in the book is that we should think about these things as more than glitches. We should think about the ways that racism or sexism or ableism are included in our technologies because uh, they are rampant in our world. We don't live in a perfect world. And so when we create AI systems that are based on existing data, we shouldn't ex expect those AI systems to themselves be perfect. A lot of people are going to push back on this, Meredith. It's, it's very controversial. Other people, I think, will agree. But most of us, it seems, will respond to your argument in what we already think. It simply confirms our biases. Somebody like, I, I can't speak on behalf of Sam Altman, but somebody like Sam Altman might come on the show and say, well, you know, I'm a progressive. I want technology to make the world a better place. He's actually been fairly explicit about that. Sure, I'm a white male, but I'm gay, and um, I don't discriminate against people of different skins or sexualities or genders. How would you respond to that kind of pushback by somebody like Altman? So I would say that we all have unconscious bias. I have it, you have it, we all have it. And we are all trying every day to be better people. Uh, I don't know any programmers uh, who get up in the morning and say, I am going to write code to oppress people. That's just, that's not how it works. Uh, but the thing about unconscious bias is that it's unconscious. We can't see it, right? So I can't see what my own blind spots are. Uh, Sam Altman can't see what his own blind spots are. So the fix is to have a diverse group of people in the room when decisions are being made about technology and also to empower those people to speak up when something seems like it's going to be a problem. And then also we need to listen to uh, those truth tellers. We need to not ignore them and we need to not devalue their contributions. As I said, your, your first book was called uh, Artificial Unintelligence. In your understanding as a data scientist, of this new generative chat uh, technology, how does that manifest bias? 
Um, how is it, it, it perhaps a vehicle for injustice rather than justice? My understanding of the technology is that it, 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 it mimics us. So if I wanted to write uh, an AI-produced essay in the style of Meredith Broussard, I would put your name in, ask the, the, ask the bot to do so, and it would produce a Meredith Broussard-like essay. Um, whether or not it can do it accurately, how does that reflect bias? So people have a lot of misconceptions about AI, and a lot of our perceptions about AI are influenced by Hollywood. So my starting point is always, let's take it back and let's start with what's real versus what's imaginary, right? So there, uh, there is no robot apocalypse coming. There is no Terminator. Like we are not going into a future that is completely controlled by AI. There is no singularity. Like, let's just, let's just take that stuff off the table. Uh, what we have with ChatGPT is we have 570 uh, gigabytes of data that has been fed into a computer and the computer makes a model. This is what happens in all machine learning. You take data, you feed it in, the computer makes a model. The model is a pattern. It articulates the mathematical patterns that it sees in the data. So the cool thing about ChatGPT is that it's fueled by GPT-3, which is the, uh, the model that has been fed with more text than anybody has ever put into a model before because it's really expensive and time consuming to do this, right? But it's also very powerful. So what ChatGPT can do is it can take all of the data that it was fed, can take its model, and then it can predict the next word, the next sequence of letters in a sentence. And it can string together sentences and stylistically, it can repeat the patterns that it's seen. So it's been used for all kinds of useful stuff uh, and a lot of really not useful stuff. Uh, I don't know, uh, listeners, if you've put your own name in and had it generate, had ChatGPT generate a bio for you, uh, that's a pretty fun endeavor. Uh, I know some kids who use ChatGPT to make up characters and then they have it write a battle to the death between those characters. Also really fun. Uh, so we need to make sure that we're talking about this as a tool, a tool that exists in the real world and has defined capabilities, as opposed to talking about it like it's some imaginary apocalyptic force. How then is this new technology more than a glitch in terms of perhaps the inequalities that it might compound? the injustices, the forms of racism and sexism and other forms of discrimination that make society a spiritually at least more impoverished place? So there are lots of examples online of ChatGPT uh, generating problematic text. Uh, and in fact, uh, ChatGPT does have uh, guardrails built in. It has kind of an internal censorship model uh, that prevents it from saying the most obviously toxic things. Uh, there's a data set out there called Real Toxicity Prompts, 
uh, which is something that uh, data scientists uh, use in order to uh, kind of evaluate the toxicity of speech that's generated by a large language model, right? And so also uh, OpenAI is monitoring the news and they're monitoring uh, the most common places on the internet. So when somebody posts uh, on Twitter that ChatGPT is, you know, is doing this, uh, you know, is generating text that seems like it's grooming a kid, then, you know, their team is going to notice it if it's at the top of the algorithms and they're going to update the uh, update the technology so it can't do that anymore, right? So it's kind of like playing whack-a-mole as problems arise. Uh, is this the best scenario? No. Is it appropriate that they are monitoring what's going on with their model? Yeah. Like, do I wish there were more guardrails in place? Also, yes. Is there, though, is there, and I use this word carefully, is there ideology? Are, have Sam Altman and his team at OpenAI, have they somehow inadvertently or otherwise um, shoehorned their ideology into this technology? So that's a good question. And when people talk about bias in technology, I... Uh, often they mean, oh, hey, are people like me, or people not like me imposing their views on me, right? And so my, my point is not to argue that, oh yeah, technology is one way or technology is another way. It's to look at the history of technology, look how it's built and help uh, readers do a better job of forecasting what are the likely problems inside technologies. So for example, Safia Noble's book, Algorithms of Oppression, uh, looks at ways that Google search uh, was biased. When you searched white girls, it gave you images of girls who were white. And when you searched black girls, it gave you porn, right? This was the case for years and years and years and Google never did anything about it. After Safia Noble's groundbreaking book was published, Google said, oh yeah, we might as well, uh, might as well get on that. And they just put a finger on the scale to change the search results. So that's no longer the case, right? So this happens over and over again. Uh, another uh, case you're probably familiar with is when Google images labeled images of black men as gorillas, or when Microsoft released a bot called Tay uh, on Twitter that, you know, it took it about five minutes to start like spewing pro Nazi stuff. Uh, we have a very long history of technology uh, going wrong in these predictable ways. And so going forward, we have an opportunity to make better decisions uh, or better guesses about what our technologies are likely to do. Your book, More Than a Glitch, um, is a call to arms, um, particularly about the way in which technology reinforces inequality suggesting that we, we need to manifest as humans, as citizens, our own agency. How, how should we begin to do this as, um, as this new AI seems to threaten, for better or worse, to change everything? What, what would you advise people to begin to do? Well, the first thing I would advise people to do is buy my book. Of course, uh, well, that's say. given, Meredith. We're, we're, <laughs> we're selling your book. Everyone needs to, to read this new book. It's an important book. So they've got the book, Meredith. All right, then fabulous. What? All right, step one is complete. 
Uh, step two is uh, draw a really clear line between what's real and what's imaginary about technology. Uh, we need to kind of up our collective level of computational literacy. Uh, people often feel scared of technology. They often feel intimidated by technology. Um, and I want to change that. I want to demystify technology. When you are faced with something that you don't understand, you feel like you can't control it. You feel like you can't push back against it. And there's also this belief that I call techno chauvinism. It's an idea that technology is somehow objective, neutral, unbiased, right? So let's get rid of techno chauvinism. Let's get rid of uh, math anxiety underneath fear of technology and let's understand what's really going on. Once we understand what's really going on, then it becomes easier to push back when an algorithm makes a decision that is unfair for reasons of race or gender or ability. So for example- Sorry, go on. So for example, there's a story I'd like to talk about that was published in the markup a few years ago. Uh, and the markup is a really terrific algorithmic accountability organization. They investigated mortgage approval algorithms. And what they found was that mortgage approval algorithms were 40 to 80% more likely to deny loan applicants of color as opposed to their white counterparts. Right? Why is that? Well, there's a long history of financial discrimination, especially around housing in the United States. Mortgage approval algorithms were fed with data about who had gotten mortgages in the past. And so in the future, they were saying, oh yeah, let's not give mortgages to people who haven't had mortgages in the past. Your book also addresses the future of certain industries, particularly, I think, um, medicine and law, which seem to be industries on the brink of profound change. How can we make sure that as AI and other forms of sophisticated technology radically transform, disrupt the legal and medical industries, that we can make the future of the law and the future of medicine, both as an industry and in terms of how we use these systems, more equitable? One thing I think we can do is we can stop talking about this AI-enabled future as if it's a, uh, a cataclysm that is going to replace us and it's right around the corner. Uh, people sometimes talk about, oh, we're going to use AI instead of judges in the legal context. Like, no, that's not going to happen. Uh, they sometimes imagine, oh, we're going to use AI instead of doctors. Like, no, that's not going to happen. Uh, we are in fact going to continue to develop new technological tools that are going to help people to do their jobs, right? So there are lots of potential applications for AI in medicine as a helper for a doctor but it's not like AI is going to replace radiologists in the next two years, which is something that I've been hearing for you know, a couple of decades now. But when it comes to law, things are changing. We've had the entrepreneur Joshua Browder, Stanford-educated startup entrepreneurs, one of the young stars of Silicon Valley on the show a couple of times. He has a startup called um, Do Not Pay, which describes itself as the world's first robot lawyer. He is replacing lawyers, physical lawyers, or his goal is to replace physical 
lawyers with the, uh, with the algorithm. And in fact, he's using chat GPT to do so. I agree with you on medicine. In fact, we've had Robert Pearl on the show, one of America's leading physicians who, who takes who, who takes your position on this, suggesting that chat GPT will help doctors. But what about the idea of smart technology of AI replacing lawyers for Browder. This is a good thing. It's it's liberating. Um, it enables people to avoid paying high prices for lawyers. Um, does this compound inequality? Is this inequitable too, uh, uh, Meredith, do you think? Well, one of the things that I read about in the book is uh, the bar exam, which is uh, the exam that you have to take in order to become a lawyer. Uh, and something that happened during the pandemic was people uh, started trying to use uh, AI-based or automated proctoring systems for tests like the bar exam. And it was, it did not go well. Uh, in uh, one case that I read about, they used a software that uh, had trouble identifying uh, people with darker skin. So we see this over and over and over in technologies that use facial recognition or facial detection. Uh, those systems uh, have you know, years and years of baked in bias in, uh, you know, in color photography, which is what you know, computer vision descends from, right? So these systems did not recognize people with darker skin. So like if you had darker skin, you would have to sit there in front of the computer with a really bright light shining in your face the whole time that you were taking the exam. Uh, the uh, automated proctoring systems have other problems too. Like the object recognition is not great. So if you, uh, got a tissue to blow your nose, sometimes it would recognize that as a piece of paper and flag you as cheating. Uh, often people didn't have enough connectivity uh, or a stable enough connection to stay connected. They would drop out. Well, then they're losing time on their exam because they have to struggle to get reconnected to this clunky software, right? So there are all these ways that, uh, that technologies actually interfere with, uh, with people's ability to get things done. Uh, and that different ability often intersects with race or gender or disability. But coming back to this example of the, the AI-based lawyer on a, a platform like Do Not Pay, Browder might argue, well, lawyers do discriminate when a, a white person or a black person walks into a room to hire them. They'll think differently. They'll charge them differently. They'll treat them differently. My, my AI, he might suggest, is colorblind, is genderblind, is, uh, is, is blind to the client's sexuality. Is that possible to have um, that objective AI lawyer on, on a platform like Do Not Pay that treats everyone in the same way? Well, so now we're back to techno chauvinism. Now we're back to the idea that somehow the computer is superior uh, to humans, that it's more objective, it's more unbiased. And when we unpack that belief, uh, it turns out that what we're actually saying there is that math is superior because what is a computer? It's just a machine that does math. And who says that math is superior? 
well, mathematicians. And if we look at the culture of mathematics, if we look at academic math, well, there's actually a pretty severe uh, culture problem there uh, that elite mathematicians have never really reckoned with. You use this word chauvinism, but I, I have to admit I'm not convinced. I mean, you can believe that math can help us without being a chauvinist. You can believe that math or engineering can help without um, suggesting that uh, that there's a superiority to science. Uh, surely uh, mathematicians who have faith in their own uh, in their own calling in their own profession, in their own science, they're not necessarily chauvinists, are they? I'm definitely not calling all mathematicians chauvinists. Uh, some of my best friends are mathematicians, is a joke I like to make. Yeah. Uh, so what I'm saying is that we all have unconscious bias and we all have blind spots and things like structural discrimination exist in the world. So we shouldn't expect that our technological systems are going to be pure, are going to be uh, somehow uh, you know, superior to social systems. We need to think about tech systems as socio-technical systems, and we need to look for very human problems inside AI systems. Because once you start looking, you start finding them. Right. This is the whole idea behind algorithmic accountability reporting. So this is a kind of data journalism. It's relatively new and it is exactly what it sounds like. Uh, increasingly, algorithms are being used to make decisions on our behalf. And one of the traditional functions of the press was to hold uh, decision makers accountable. Now in this algorithmically mediated world, uh, we have to transfer that accountability function onto algorithms and their creators. So we have organizations like the Markup uh, or uh, one of the investigative teams at the New York Times or ProPublica who are doing really high tech investigative reporting. Uh, there was just a really terrific investigation out uh, last week from Wired and Lighthouse Reports uh, that was pretty groundbreaking. What they did was they uh, found an algorithm that was used in Rotterdam to try and detect welfare fraud. And they got the, uh, the code, the data, and, uh, and the model that were used in this AI-based welfare fraud detection system, uh, and they analyzed it. And they found that this system was biased based on ethnicity and gender. Right? The reason this is so groundbreaking is because this is the first time that journalists have been able to get the code, the data, and the model, and all of the descriptions of the system. Uh, possibly because Rotterdam uh, discontinued this model because they realized, oh wait, there are problems here. We don't know what the problems are, but you know, we've received public criticism and we're going to examine it. They looked hard. They said, oh, wait, this doesn't work the way we expected. Uh, and they are building, they're trying to build a different model now. We'll see how that goes. Meredith, though, aren't you giving, aren't you shifting the, 
the final authority, the power from the builders of the algorithm, the coder, the mathematician, to the investigative journalist. At some point, someone has to make a call on all this stuff. It's enormously controversial. Are you suggesting that investigative journalists should be the ones determining which codes are used and which aren't? Who, who ultimately determines this? So I am interested in human-in-the-loop systems. So we can think about two kinds of systems. We can think about autonomous systems or human-in-the-loop systems. Autonomous systems are ones that function without human input. So that's a system like, you know, the kind of fantasy of the self-driving car where you would tap an app and the car would show up and it would take you to wherever you're going and then it would drop you off and then like disappear into the ether, right? Uh, and that's an autonomous system. It's all mediated by computers end to end. Uh, a human in the loop system is like what we have now where you have an app and you, you know, tap the app and then a human driver uh, in a taxi or rideshare vehicle comes to your door and drives you wherever and drops you off, right? Uh, so there is a human in the loop. So people tend to imagine that the AI future is all autonomous. Uh, that somehow we're going to get to this uh, this imaginary place where uh, where computers are governing everything, and that is very cool to imagine, uh, but uh, it's not realistic, right? It's more realistic to plan for human in the loop systems because humans are the point. You know, the point is not. No, I, I take that point, but you you, yeah. you didn't really answer my question. I mean, who who determines this stuff? So I agree, we have a human in the loop system, which is fair enough, but there are lots of different variations on this human in the loop system. Who determines which ones work and which don't? Who determines which ones um, lead to more a more equitable or inequitable future? How are we supposed to shape our futures? Well, it's a collective future, isn't it? Um, I mean, I don't think anybody would say, oh, yes, there's one person who should decide for everybody. So right? how does it work? So no, I take your point, but, but, uh -huh. but could you give me some examples of, of how collectively we can determine this? Sure. So right now what we have is we have uh, this idea that AI is a black box that we can't see inside. That's not true. Uh, we have a a kind of new process called algorithmic auditing, uh, which allows us a certain degree of insight into black boxes. Uh, so algorithmic auditing is one of the things I read about in the book. I wish it had a better name, you know, because people kind of cringe when you say auditing. Uh, but the idea is that you uh, take the system and you test it for intersectional accuracy. Uh, you make sure to uh, to run tests about whether the system is biased against you know, people based on ethnicity, people based on gender, people based on disability, people based on you know whatever criteria you evaluate it and then you're probably you're likely going to find problems again because bias exists in the world, bias exists in the data you're using to train a system so you're going to get, bias out. We need to start having hard conversations in which we acknowledge that systems are going to be biased, that there are going to be problems found, and we're going to have to have conversations about race, about gender, about ability. 
Uh, and I don't know about you, but I don't really have these incredibly difficult conversations. I, uh, you know, well, okay, I'm on book tour. I do actually have these conversations every day. But right, in I, mean, ordinary, are, I think in America, people are having these conversations all the time. Not everyone agrees on, on, on any of this stuff, which is why they're such difficult conversations. But going back to this idea of intersectional accuracy, it's a very intriguing idea, which may indeed be the fix. Do we need publicly funded uh, systems where we'll be able to feed our new AI systems into to determine their intersectional or other kinds of accuracy? Is that what we need? Some sort of public space where our AI, um, our algorithms, our platforms, our new codes can be checked out in the same way as we had public or uh, institutions that determined the justice or injustice of our industrial products and processes? Well, one of the, uh, one of the things that I'm optimistic about uh, is the FTC in the United States. Uh, so the Federal Trade Commission uh, under Lena Khan has uh, is recently issued some guidance saying, listen, if you are selling an AI system, it needs to work the way that you claim it works and it needs to not discriminate. That is really new. For many years, uh, makers of technology have gotten away with saying all kinds of, you know, making all kinds of unsubstantiated claims and not being called on it. Uh, another thing that people have proposed is that we need an FDA for algorithms. Uh, the FDA mm. examines new drugs before they come onto the market. Uh, so the idea is, all right, well, algorithms are out there causing harm. Maybe we need a regulatory agency that, uh, you know, that examines them before they roll out. The EU has, uh, has developed a little bit more on this idea. Uh, they are ahead of the United States in terms of doing uh, AI regulation. And one of the things they've proposed uh, is that uh, AI would be divided into high risk and low risk applications. So high risk use of facial recognition, for example, would be facial recognition technology used on real time video feeds by police. So that would need to be registered, regulated and monitored. But a low risk use of facial recognition might be the facial recognition that you use to unlock your phone, right? Very low stakes. Uh, there's an alternative, you know, you can use a passcode. Half the time the facial recognition doesn't work anyway. Like if you're wearing a mask or when you're wearing, you know, if I'm wearing glasses, it doesn't work. It's not really a big deal. Uh, so that's a low risk use that would not need to be regulated. Uh, under these uh, under these rules, so there are lots of things we can do from a policy perspective uh, that are going to uh, hopefully uh, help improve uh, the public technology in the public interest. Yeah, it's interesting you bring up Lena Khan. She's of course uh, in incredibly divisive. Some people love her, some people hate her, some people think she's destroying the world, some people think that she's perfecting the world. Ultimately, isn't all this? 
going to end up in, in, in some sort of political context. You talk about an FDA for algorithms, which I actually like the idea of. But of course, the institutions that came about in the first Industrial New Deal were very controversial. So ultimately, the fix here is political, isn't it? I think it's, uh, it's social, it's political, and it's technological all at the same time. I, we tend to imagine technology as, as kind of springing fully formed out of the heads of geniuses, and that's not how it works. It's really clunky. It's a thing that's made by people. It's artisanally produced, so we can change it. Um, there was a uh, there was a story in the Atlantic yesterday by uh, Gary Marcus where he uh, been on the show a, several times by the way. Oh, Gary. fantastic! Uh, so he wrote about um, watermarking. Uh, one of the uh, one of the proposals for uh, identifying text written by large language models is uh, computational watermarking. Now we already do this with printers. Um, who was the, uh, there was that case where a, where somebody leaked documents to a news organization and uh, they printed them out and the news organization published them and uh, the leaker was identified based on uh, invisible watermarks or invisible to the eye watermarks uh, put on the paper by the printer. Right, so watermarking is a pretty long-standing technology. Uh, why isn't there watermarking in uh, text generated by ChatGPT? Well, that was a technological decision that was made by OpenAI, right? So we need all of these things working together. We need the public saying, hey, uh, you know, we think this is really cool technology, but uh, it's not uh, making us feel safe that there are not enough guardrails and that, you know, our public uh, space or public discourse can be flooded with garbage, right? We need policymakers to say, hey, listen, we're going to make a rule for everybody and like, this is gonna be how it is. And we need the creators of the technology to make their technology conform to the rule and test their technology uh, periodically to make sure it still conforms to the rule. 